Tamariya, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday, the 7th of February. Core Nathan Rarere, a whole Turkey has been smashed by two huge earthquakes. We'll have the latest from the disaster zone, uh, disaster zone soon. Uh, we're going to be in Japan as well, where the sushi train could be arriving at its final stop. We ask Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis why Shane Reti was the only National MP at Waitangi yesterday. And a major land slip means a group of Coromandel students will either have to travel two hours to get to school or make other plans. They're contemplating different options like online learning, which is the first thing to deal with, and then thinking about either boarding arrangements or other sorts of arrangements on this side, on the, on the west side, in order to make coming to school easier. Koto, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarity here and we begin this morning in Turkey where at least 2,300 people have been killed in the country's largest series of earthquakes in 80 years. The first quake measured 7.8 on the Richter scale and the second 7.5. They were centred near the southern province of Gaziantep. The quakes were also felt across the border in Syria and as far away as Cyprus and Egypt. The BBC's Richard Galpin has this report. The huge earthquake of 7.8 magnitude hit provinces in both Turkey and Syria in the early hours of morning. Many were asleep at the time. It brought down hundreds of buildings and forced many to flee for their lives. Including these journalists who've been filming in the area. The depth of this earthquake was shallow, which is what made it so powerful. There are people still trapped under rubble. I have a friend living in this apartment. His children were rescued from the top floor, but only his daughter broke an arm. We'll see what happened to those living on the ground floors. May God give us a speedy recovery. I was sleeping when my wife suddenly woke me up. The quake was very severe, very scary. It took almost two minutes until the shaking stopped. Meanwhile, rescue teams and local people continue to search for those who may be trapped inside the stricken buildings. It's not clear at the moment if anyone's been found alive. The international community has already promised to provide aid. Across the border in the opposition-held area of northwest Syria, the death toll has risen. Many families now are under the rubble. Our, 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 fab, our team's trying to save them, trying to save the people, to save the, all the people from under the rubble with all capabilities. But it's, it's, it's very difficult task for us. We need help. Local hospitals are struggling to cope. The situation is too bad because a lot of people are still under the debris of the buildings. Uh, really, we need urgent help for the area, especially when we are talking about medical help. This has been a devastating earthquake. Many people still desperately trying to pull out those trapped in the rubble. And the danger continues with more aftershocks forcing people to flee for their lives. 
Richard Gilpin with that report. It is eight past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. We go to the UK now. I'm joined from London by our correspondent, Ali J. Morena, Ali. Um, Liz Truss's name has bounced back into the conscience because she sat down for her first interview since being tossed out of Downing Street. What did we learn this time? Atamari and Nathan, yes, that's right. So Liz Truss is in the news again. We haven't heard from her. I mean, it's been four months since she um, stood down from being Britain's shortest serving prime minister. She lasted just 49 days. Um, so that was mid-October. Since then, we haven't really heard anything from her until now. And she's written this um, big piece in The Telegraph. The Telegraph are quite a, a right-leaning paper. And so her opinion piece took the, took the front page yesterday and people have been talking about about it ever since. So it's basically giving her version of the events uh, that happened whilst she was Prime Minister. If you cast your cast your mind back to last year, she defeated Rishi Sunak, becoming Prime Minister, and then later that month, uh, with the Chancellor then, Kwasi Kwarteng, released what was dubbed the mini-budget. So this involved huge ta- tax cuts, abolishing the top rate of income tax, and uh, abolishing a cap on bankers' bonuses as well. Uh, the UK economy then tanked. The pound crashed to its lowest ever. I mean, even uh, US President Joe Biden as well uh, weighed in and said he thought it was a bad idea. And the Bank of England said pension funds were very close to collapsing as well. So all of this happened in such a short space of time. Um, The Bank of England stepped in. They said that in hindsight, people are saying it cost the UK economy nearly £30 billion. So in this article that's come out, uh, Liz Truss is basically explaining her side of things and also kind of apportioning blame for quite a lot of the problems with this mini budget on lots of different people. So she talks as well about um, LDIs, these uh, liability driven investments that as she says the pension funds were quite invested in. Um, she's saying she didn't know too much about this. She wasn't briefed properly about this but since then she's found out quite a lot about them. Uh, she's also talked about her party and the lack of support from the party and, and she said I underestimated the resistance inside the Conservative Party to move to a lower tax, less regulated economy. Uh, She also said as well, I mean, partway through the article, she says too, that knowing what she knows now, undoubtedly she would have handled things differently. But that kind of doesn't really stop in this article, her saying uh, the lack of support. She also says the general public are um, quite left-leaning at the moment. She says the media as well didn't help and the Bank of England. So really it's quite a list of, of what happened, what she says happened, what went wrong. Uh, and we'll find out, I mean, in, in about 45 minutes here, she's, she's doing her first TV interview as well for Spectator TV so that will go out online uh, and undoubtedly we're going to hear more then yeah, it's, it's, it's everyone else's fault but hers. Okay. Um, now, I saw Mick Lynch again. He's quite an inspiring fellow uh, to see there. Uh, it's interesting here that, you know, he seems to be the guy in the UK who's the spokesman for strikes. There's another pain in the government's backside at the moment, the NHS strike. What's the latest? Yes, so Mick Lynch um, is the head of the RMT. He tends to um, talk about, because there have been quite a few rail strikes recently. Most recently, last week, there were two of them, not affecting all lines across the country, but it's likely we'll see more of those too. And this week, it's the biggest strikes across the NHS so far. So a huge number of trusts across the country are on strike today. Uh, Nurses and ambulance staff, this is the first time they've both been on strike on the same day. So it's saying it's going to... uh, 
uh, affect around 50,000 um, scheduled appointments today across the UK. And it's all talking about pay deals. So in Wales, strikes are being called off because of new pay offers and in Scotland as well. But bosses here, health bosses here are saying the government needs to do the same as well for England. And the health minister has said just this morning that it's it's too late to do these pay rises retrospectively. And they're going to, they'll only negotiate for next year. But tomorrow we're going to see nurses strike. On Thursday, it'll be physios. And on Friday, more ambulance staff, about half of England, England's ambulance staff as well. So more to come. Mm. Ellie, thank you very much for your time this year's Ellie J, recent visitor to New Zealand, just escaped uh, Auckland's floods uh, on a flight uh, she touched, as she uh, took off. Thank you very much, Ellie. Look at you, you've made it to 13 past five. Yes, uh, you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Uh Always keen for your feedback on anything. Just tell us how your weekend was. Uh, 2101 would be great to hear from you, but we go to Japan now where the world-famous sushi trains could be arriving at their final stop. I know. But first, our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert, told me why people are angry after a senior politician's comment about same-sex marriage. The other week, an executive secretary to the Prime Minister Kishida said something pretty bad. He was going to be given like the privilege of anonymity, but then I think a news outlet Kyoto that reported it was like, now nah, bugger this guy. His name is Masayoshi Arai. And his comments on uh, same-sex marriage or non-hetero partnerships were that, and, uh, and they're not nice, they were that he wouldn't want to live next door to one of these couples and that he, quote, doesn't even want to look at them. So shocking and awful and despicable, but also not so out of line with how dated Japan is uh, socially on these issues. It has an incredibly dated view on non-hetero couples, LGBTQI community um, historically. Their attitude is changing with the younger generation. The prime minister seems to have picked up on this as well, and he has fired Masayoshi Arai from his position. He made the remarks in an apparently off-the-record conversation, which is why I mentioned earlier that Kyoto chose to report it, during which he said that recognizing same-sex marriage in Japan would, quote, change the way society is, and that quite a few people, quote, again, would abandon the country. I remember people in New Zealand actually saying very similar things in 2012 and 2013, and just look how extremely wrong they were. Mm. This 55-year-old apologized and retracted, But the problem is the whole country had just seen into his soul. There's no retracting that. He's been lambasted by civics groups, opposition MPs, people on the news who were vox popped about it on the street, expressed fury and concern. And the worst thing about it, I don't know if it's the worst thing. I think the worst thing is the obvious. But like another bad thing about it is that, you know, I'm reporting on the international media, which is just making Japan's reputation for this look even worse. But you know what? Like, fair enough. The ruling LDP has been heavily swayed by uh, Shinto religious organizations here, which are more political than religious. The Shinto organizations, by the way, is attached attached to the little cute little shrines you see everywhere. But they've also been handing out leaflets against LGBTQI community and same-sex marriage at LDP ruling party meetings. There have been some efforts made by cities like Shibuya City inside Tokyo to recognize same-sex marriage and marriage equality by handing out certificates, or not hand, you, you apply for them, which recognizes these couples, helps them apply for things like credit cards or getting apartments together, but they're not official, they're 
not in law, they're not recognized by the whole country, and businesses can still just turn them down. So there is a shocking record of prejudice in Japan for women's equality, for LGBTQI plus equality. So it is, it is regrettable, the remarks, unfortunately, but for Japan, it is kind of an accurate depiction of where, I guess, the ruling mindset of society is at. Right. You know, one of the, uh, I know one of our favorite family restaurants in Auckland is a sushi train. That's the, uh, where do you want to go, kids? Sushi train! And there's plenty of those around, and they're a great fun. You sit there, and I guess it's like a fancy version of the old Lazy Susan that used to be in restaurants, but I understand it might be facing extinction. The Lazy Susan. I grew up with a Lazy, lazy Susan, Susan in my house. Poor Susan, I by the way. I love those things. Poor Susan, the poor original, huh? poor original Susan, who was but so lazy they named something after her. But anyway, carry on. Yes. You know, I've always questioned the naming of that ever since I was a young man. But yes, uh, the sushi train, the beloved sushi train, the adored sushi train is is facing potential extinction because of bad behavior from customers. And I guess heightened hygiene awareness in Japan in general, uh, you know, following, well, continuing in the pandemic. Sushido is one of the main sushi train chains, like franchises here, hmm. with 650 stores throughout the country. And last month, there was a video of some kid in one of these Sushido stores licking the soy sauce container and like the self-service teacup at his table, like licking everything, leaving these tainted objects for the next person to use. And of course, this kind of behavior north of the pandemic is just a, a million percent not on. Even at the best of times, before the pandemic, it's not on. But especially now, Sushido is scrambling to reassure customers about the, you know, how sanitary it is. And uh, it's made some moves you know, to try and lure people back. But one of these things is it has stopped the train. The train is no longer running. It hasn't even left the station. It's not going to the station. It's not there anymore. It's not entirely bad news because there's still something pretty cool you can do. Nate, I'm not sure if you did this when you're in Tokyo, but there are some sushi places where it's kind of like a sushi train, but it's one way, and you have a little iPad and you, beep, 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 and you uh, put in your little order. And then, like when it's ready, there's like a uh, like a train line in front of you, and these plates go whizzing out of the kitchen, and they go around the store, and they stop right in front of you, like you know, and you take the little plate and you push the button, and it goes whizzing back, you know. So it's kind of like a unilateral train, I guess you could say. Yeah. It's just for you, your own personal private conveyor belt. So those things are kind of taking over, but I, I, I guess it is this kind of heightened awareness from the pandemic as well i mean i haven't done sushi train for years you know like you know how like there are those people at baggage claim who like race to the front to be the very first to get their bags at the airport well, that's the trick and, you know like that's that- the trick you always got to sit right by where it comes out so you get to the teriyaki first yeah i know i mean i realize that now i think i've been making a mistake for years <laughs> you know because i think i i always thought those guys i'm one of the guys at the back of the baggage claim like tapping my foot really coolly like i don't care when my bags come out i got all the time and sushi train I'm going to be right up the front because that sushi is just going round and round all day, just like raw fish under people's hot breath over and over again, wilting on those cheap dollar store plates. I mean, everyone knows, even at Sushi Train, you order off the menu. Look at the menu. Don't look at the train. Look at the menu. And in Japan, order off the specials menu. Like, learn Japanese for, hey, I can't speak Japanese so well, but this sounds good, and you'll be set. Forget the Sushi Train. It's not the 90s anymore. That's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo.
It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, Glenn Forsyth, I know, Minister of Fruit and Veg bonus Tuesday episode. Wake the kids up. And the plight of Coromandel students after massive slips have cut them off from school. There they are standing in the rear. Big one, small one, some Yes, as promised, the special bonus episode with the Minister of Fruit and Veg. He's with us for a Tuesday. We love getting him up uh, very early. Morena Glenn, how are you? Oh, so kind, Marina Nathan. I'm very well. How are you, sir? <laughs> Good, mate. Hey, uh, capsicums. I'm pleased that it's capsicum season. Ever since one of my daughters was very young, she eats them like apples. Loves them. Oh, that's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, it's a vegetable we haven't featured for some time, and in season are fresh capsicums. We have four big growers in New Zealand of these, situated at Walkworth, Woodhill, Fokatani, and Nelson. Now, raw or cooked, they are a delightful vegetable, and since the mid-90s here, they took off, not only because they're nutritious and healthy, but the four colours grown in New Zealand can make your meal, salad, or platter pretty spectacular. Now, with school back, don't be shy to introduce capsicums to your angels at a young age, as you've just mentioned, Nate. But try with the red ones first. They are the most popular here and the sweetest. Cut into strips, removing the seeds and fluffy inside liner. Now two or three strips of these a day with strips of celery, cucumber and carrot in a Tupperware container. You can provide your little one with a great midday snack at school. Now if you shop around this week, one capsicum would set you back maybe only $1.50 to $2 each. And that one container of colour goodness would cost possibly just a dollar, probably the same as a sugary bar. Now throw in some seasonal summer fruit, a hearty sandwich with lettuce and tomato between the meat and, and, and cheese so the bread doesn't go soggy, and that's a lunchbox made you know, made for champions. And you may be surprised how, how kids go for the capsicum, raw capsicum. Yeah, uh, the, yeah especially the greens. The, uh, not, not the green, that doesn't seem to be the one she'll eat, but the red for sure. Hey, tell me about those two, carrots, potatoes, onions, what do we got there? Yeah, now even though we may be paying between 3 to $4 for carrots, potatoes and brown onions at present, the main thing is we have supply. We can credit long-standing and experienced growers such as Wilcox from Pukekohe for this as they spread their risk, um, you know, staying a step ahead of the weather and they grow in Northland, Matamata, Awakuni and the South Island as well. And another spud to look out for this week are the cute perla potatoes. Now the brown onions, they do have ugly skins now because of Water damage, however, these export rejects will be to our benefit. Red onions, now they're about $8 a kilo now, bargain, but considering they were twice that in December. A mushroom update with smaller farms in Canterbury, Carterton and Timata closing. You know, and add to this two of the three big boys with some straw and compost issues and the third quietening down for the summer. That's all a recipe for very low supply of mushrooms. However, we are being told in three weeks' time the mushroom pipeline will fill up again. Now, here we are, though. Vegetables in good supply this morning reported from some of the North Island markets, cabbage, courgette, celery, beans and sweet corn. So a few to choose from there. And what what about uh, their friends over there that they hold hands with? What about fruit? <laughs> fruit. Here we go, walking through those aisles. A perfect week to make plenty of fresh fruit salads for the family. We mentioned no fewer than eight beauties today, starting with nectarines and apricots. More volume of these now coming out of central Otago. There, were, there are also some nice black diamond plums available and flatter white flesh peaches. These are brilliant any which way in a fruit salad on the cereal or oats and, of course, straight from the hand. Fresh pineapple, they are a must, and the tropical gold are a favourite. Early season apples, they've, they've impressed uh, too. There's raw gala, and I asked some people of their experience with the sweet tango. And to describe them in one word, replies were crisp, juicy, sweet, and refreshing. I mean, that's pretty much an A-plus there.
Finishing on watermelon, they're cracking now, so you'll probably see retailers sell per each from this week instead of by the kilo. To give you an idea of numbers, growers pack in 300 kilo produce bins. In the Auckland markets this morning, they were getting deliveries of over 100 each. So look for firm, shiny skin and no deterioration around the top and bottom stem. Enjoy while we can, as there have been losses to the weather. And oh my gosh, Nate, last time, but we spoke of Wordle last week. But if listeners think of something we've actually mentioned today on air, they'll get it in one. So yeah, have a have a great week, guys. Perfect. Thank you very much, Glenn. Well yeah, yeah, Wordle hints too. I like that. See we're just weaving in extra bits here. It's like glass onion, isn't it? Oh, free veg, huh? Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Mm. This is the day of our life we call the 7th of February. Very celebrity-filled birthday today. Uh, here we go. Ashton Kushta, 45. Kutcher. Sorry. Ashton Kutcher, 45. Chris Rock, 57. Garth Brooks, 61. Eddie Izzard, 61. And James Spader. 63. It's also the birthday of John Deere, uh, the American blacksmith uh, who created the first commercially successful cast steel plough in 1837. Uh, he was born on this day in 1804 and his big world headquarters are there in, in uh, uh, Moline. And uh, I had a bit of a look and the John De- the most expensive John Deere you can buy right now is the John Deere 9560RT. Have you got one of those? Do you want one of those? Well, it will... The American equivalent, I had to convert it into New Zealand dollars, $723,489,000 for that tractor. It is a massive engine, a 16-cylinder diesel, uh, and it produces 1,200 horsepower. Yeah. Uh, on this day in 1984... Uh, this is one of the most brave things I've ever heard. Uh, the first human to fly free of a spacecraft. It was Captain Bruce McCandless. It was on the space sh- uh, shuttle Challenger. And they basically said, OK, just unclip and you float out into space. And if you push the button, hopefully you'll come back. Hmm, hopefully. And on this day, Mississippi became the last US state to officially abolish slavery. In 2013. Horrible. That is uh, this day in history that we like to call February the 7th. And Anzaki is here from the business team as we have a look at the world of the biz. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, very well, how are you? I'm good. Now, a lot of people displaced from homes in, in Auckland with the, the flooding and I know that some of them were given you know, maybe a small payout by insurance companies to help them uh, find somewhere to be. But competition for um, rentals and retail rentals after Auckland floods too. Yeah, uh, like you say, we've of course heard about the difficult situation uh, for residential rentals. Uh, This is more on the commercial side. Uh, We spoke to the commercial property company Colliers, and they said uh, those in uh, retail spaces, more specifically industrial uh, retail spaces, will have to compete for uh, just a limited amount of rentals on offer uh, as they look to relocate. Uh, Of course, uh, Auckland is in uh, clean-up mode after the floods, uh, which uh, led to tragic loss of life and significant damage. 
now some retail spaces uh, in the city were also hard hit. Uh, for example, the roof guttering uh, inside the retail centre of the billion-dollar PwC commercial tower. Uh, that overflowed. Uh, Collier's told us that uh, they are, they're still assessing the damage to um, all of its retail spaces, but they have had to uh, temporarily relocate some clients. Uh, and we spoke to Chris Dibble from uh, Collier's, and he said office and retail clients, they have the ability to relocate uh, a little bit easier, but industrial clients will struggle uh, to find space. And that's because vacancy rates are very low in industrial areas. So it'll be very tough. Uh, but he said it's also too soon to know how long the repairs to flood damaged properties will take. And uh, he is urging people to contact their agents uh, for support. Yeah. Uh, there was another thing here you wanted to talk about. I'm very interested in this. Two major car makers shake up their alliance. Who, who are they? What, what was their alliance? Well, so Nissan and Renault are the two companies here. Uh, and they've had this uh, alliance for 24 years. Uh, it's not a happy alliance, I have to say. Uh, it was formed after Renault. Uh, so the French car maker rescued Nissan uh, from the brink of bankruptcy in 1999. Uh, anyway, these two uh, companies, they've unveiled a big shakeup of their uh, alliance. And it could be uh, good news on the electric car from now. It's a more of an equal, uh, equal uh, alliance now. It used to be uh, somewhat skewed in the favor of Renault, which made it a bit of an unhappy uh, relationship. But now Nissan is going to take a stake in uh, Renault's a flagship electric car unit. They're going to work together on electronics and battery technology, uh, and they're going to have joint projects in Europe, uh, India, and Latin America. So Nissan, of course, maker of the Nissan Leaf, one of the world's most popular electric cars. So it could be an interesting move on the electric car front. Uh, so commentators... They've also said that this change was necessary to keep this alliance alive. So it's a pretty interesting news out of the uh, world automotive sector. It is. Thank you very much for your time. And you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's go to the money markets now and see what your New Zealand dollar will buy you. 62.9 US cents, 91.37 Australian cents, 58.52 Euro cents, 52.18 British pence, 4.27 yuan and 83.37 Japanese yen. Yes, it's time now to head to Clay's Couch. Uh, it's where he's been all weekend watching sport just for you uh, in the RNZ uh, Sports Department. Someone has to do yes, it. Yes, it's Clay Wilson. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, Nate. Yeah. What, 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 there was so much on uh, this weekend sporting-wise. What grabbed you? Yeah, I have to say um, I was working on Sunday morning Yeah. and uh, the Six Nations, it sort of crept up on me. It's funny, isn't it, because it's summer here and we don't really think about rugby, although Super Rugby starts in just a few weeks' time, but... <laughs> It's sort of weird. Cricket's being played, rugby's being played. It's yeah. all sort of meshes together now, doesn't it? Um, but one of the marquee matchups of that first round of Six Nations was Scotland against England. And Scotland have now beaten England three times on the bounce and twice at Twickenham. Yeah. For those of us who don't mind seeing English sporting teams <laughs> lose, uh, 
it's pretty glorious, isn't it? It <laughs> is. Yes. Well, like I say my granddad arrived here on a boat from Aberdeen in Scotland, so that's uh, that's the that's the the cheering interest for me in the Six Nations. I was very happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no. And and a, and, a, and a brilliant game. Yeah. A brilliant game as well. Not just not just they didn't just grind out a win. Both teams scored excellent tries. Yeah. And Scotland, this winger they have, the South African-born winger Duhan van der Merwe, he's absolutely sensational. He scored one brilliant solo try in the first half and then he scored the match winning try which he had plenty of work to do to finish off mm, mm. Um, so a great start for them the Warren Gatland second era in Wales has started in a fairly um, disappointing fashion they got beaten by about 20 odd points by, by Ireland and then uh, France and Italy actually played a very good game France just sneaking home. They've won 11 in a row now, France, going into the World Cup that they're hosting yeah. later this year. But this Italian team look like they've improved a little bit, which is a good sign for that competition. I have to I have to apologise to them uh, in on Morning Report because last week, I mean, someone's got to watch Italy. They're fun to watch. And they beat Wales last year. Yeah, they Not are really fun. Wales were a, a crash hot at the moment. But, um, yeah, I mean, if nothing else, if they make that competition, if they're more comp- competitive in that competition, that's better. Maybe it's still a ways to go to be genuinely competitive against the the big teams consistently but but it's yeah. a good sign and um twitter uh, always one of those things that you always wonder with athletes go do you know what just put it down don't just put it walk away walk away from that it never it never ends up well they were even when it's the bit they go oh this guy's fun to follow <laughs> Ooh, with that and um sunny bills um n- not been so great on the on the tweet yeah, machine just recently i mean i'm not sunny bill williams and sometimes i think about tw- tweeting something and <laughs> retweeting something i think maybe i just won't, won't just because send. it's going to cause some kind of <laughs> And not even a, a storm or a controversial issue, but uh, he's retweeted something uh, that's sort of being taken as anti-trans, anti-trans, sort of transphobic mm. in a way of this, this very famous doctor. Um, and then he's deleted this retweet. But of course, once you retweet something, you're essentially supporting that. that and uh, you know, it's, we've seen examples yeah. of this in the in the US with big. Big sporting stars, Kyrie Irving, who's another player who's in the who's in the news. Mm, you know, wow. suspended eight games and got in all sorts of trouble for for retweeting a, a link to a movie that was anti-Semitic. And mm. you know, this is a similar kind of situation. As soon as you retweet something like this, this is a you know, and and tra- and transphobic LGBT. GTB rights. It's something that's that's sort of very very prominent at the moment. You you've got to be, and if, you, if you're having to go back and delete it, then. I think it says you probably shouldn't have done it in the yeah. first place. Well, I mean, I, they could go two ways, right? They could either double down, Corey Irving, or you, you can delete. <laughs> and I, I still think at least the delete, because maybe it's the, oof, maybe I shouldn't have said that. As I perhaps think yeah, yeah, a, a better option. Like, to, to, to your point, to think, think about it before you do it in the first place. I what think do the kids call it? Receipts. We've got receipts. We saw what you did. <laughs> so there it is. Hey, thanks very much, Claire. Cheers, mate. Well, but Waitangi Day has come and gone, and in this election year, it seemed especially important that our political parties were represented on the day by MPs and party leaders. But there was one notable omission amongst the leaders, a no-show on Waitangi Day itself by National Leader Christopher Luxon. I spoke with Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and started by asking why Shane Retty was the only National MP there. We had a great delegation at Waitangi on various days and today we chose to celebrate Waitangi Day in our communities up and down the country. There were some others who went to the Porphyry. We were really proud that Dr Reti represented us and gave a prayer at the dawn service. And look, in the future, if we're able to attend in greater numbers, we will. But I mean, it's just I guess with Christopher Luxon, it was quite glaring that he wasn't there. And if you're going to be the leader of a nation, you should be there with all the other leaders, shouldn't you? Well, he was at Waitangi and he went to the Porphyry. He spoke, he engaged with the leaders 
and he, like many New Zealanders, celebrated Waitangi Day in his home city in Auckland today. Hmm. But not, not on the day of Waitangi Day, he didn't. I think that he paid tribute to uh, Waitangi that day at Waitangi and also celebrated in his community. And I think there's a place for both. Okay, so one of the, look, one of the big issues at Waitangi was the recommendation um, late last year of the Waitangi Tribunal, uh, which is a pretty major report of theirs too, that Crown land be returned to Northern Māori. What's National's position on that? Recommendations made by the Waitangi Tribunal are not binding on the Crown. The way that New Zealand comes to deal with these claims and has done for several decades is that there is a negotiation process that occurs between the Crown and interested parties. And it's that process that has led to many successful Waitangi settlements. And that's the way we would like to see Ngāpui's claims addressed. Do you support, though, in principle, redress for Northern Māori? I think where there is proof of wrongdoing by the Crown, where it hasn't met its obligations under the treaty, then there must be redress. And New Zealand should be proud of its history of doing that across multiple iwi. And I would absolutely like to see a treaty settlement with the hapu and iwi of the Northland area. I always find it quite funny people talk about, you know, Waitangi Day, oh, it's divisive and stuff. But you have a look around the world at how people in other parts of the world uh, react to each other and protest and fight and blow things up and that. It's it's not really divisive by worldwide standards at all, is it? I think that it's a day to celebrate being a New Zealander mm. and to honour that foundational relationship between Māori and the Crown. And yes, to think about how promises that were made have not been kept, but also really importantly, to think ahead to a stronger relationship and a better future. And actually, we should be proud as a country of the redress that we have achieved uh, in more recent decades under successive governments. And I think a willingness across our parliament, across our country, to work well together. Yeah, and I, I saw that Christopher Luxon said he, he wants all treaty claims to be settled by 2030 if he's in. So, uh, you know, that time frame is interesting because that's what got us into this mess in the first place. So I'm wondering if, if National's in government at the time and there are still unresolved claims by 2030 and it ticks over, is, it, is that just too bad? Well, Chris Luxon was very clear that he wants to set that target because he thinks achieving settlement for Iwi is a good goal to have. And he was also clear that if Iwi don't wish to settle, then obviously that deadline won't be kept. But National has a record here. You know, uh, we were successful in passing 46 settlements into law with many more, sorry, not many more, but with others concluded. This government has slowed down the pace dramatically. It's only passed 13 into law, five of which were actually signed off under National. We want to keep the pace up because actually when we do those settlements, when we make those apologies from the Crown, when we give that redress, it provides a foundation from which we can move forward in a positive way. Yeah, I guess it's it's the pace thing that will give people the willies though because, you know, remember back in the horrible old days, you know, Māori were given about three hours to, to, just to state their entire case and then, well, you know, time finishes. So it, it's good to, good to hear that you, you want it to be done properly though. Absolutely. The process should be thorough because these are full and final settlements. Mm. Uh, But I think with the right resources, the right backing and the focus from the Prime Minister down through his cabinet, more can be achieved. I think of Chris Finlayson and how resolute he was 
on achieving treaty settlements, on building those relationships with iwi so that more and more Māori could look forward to a more prosperous future. So there is a real positive side to having a good target. Let's shift to something else here. I know that you've been very keen to get help for New Zealand agricultural and horticulturalists, you know, with with people coming over to help and work. And then I I saw the story last week that it really made my heart sink about a lot of those workers coming from overseas, living in really dire conditions, 12 people sleeping in one room in a house in Hastings, which is where I'm from. So I'm ashamed to hear that sort of behaviour coming out of there. The Human Rights Commission's called out to human rights abuses about this with inflicted on RSC workers. How can we justify bringing workers in and more workers when they're being put up in places like that? Well, people do need to be treated very well when they come to New Zealand. And that's why New Zealand Immigration has set minimum accommodation standards for foreign workers. That's something that National supports. There should be standards for the kinds of accommodation these people are living in, for the kitchen facilities, the bathroom facilities available to them. Uh, The key there, of course, is that those standards then need to be enforced. And there do need to be inspections, it seems, if people are falling short of them. And unfortunately, I think there are, and forgive the pun, but some bad apples out there. Mm. But equally, I have met with apple growers in Hawke's Bay and others involved who are very keen to see their workers from overseas treated really well because they want them coming back year year after year. They want really strong relationships with them and I think it's a real shame when some people let down the whole system. So it's all about having those standards enforced. Yeah, I mean there's always the ones that are only going to look at profit margin rather than human beings, aren't they, unfortunately? And unfortunately that's why we do need to have inspections to ensure that the requirements are followed in reality. So do you think then that we have enough of those? Because surely, you know, with the checks you mentioned before, and if we've got inspections, a a, a case like that should never happen. Well, I'm not aware of how many inspections there are, but I would hope that the New Zealand Immigration Service would look at those stories and then look at, okay, well, what's been going on with inspections in that area? How was this overlooked? Uh, And just finally, uh, the, the government is going to extend the fuel tax cut and the public transport subsidy, despite Grant Robertson previously ruling it out. Do do you think it's the right call? Well, we were uh, a little dismayed because we were expecting a new policy to address the cost of living, and this is now the fourth time that this on-again, off-again fuel subsidy uh, has been put on the table. And actually, it's creating a lot of uncertainty, I think, for people because they don't know when it's coming back on, how the government is funding it or what's going to happen next. National continues to be of the view that New Zealanders should just get to keep more of what they earn with a program of permanent tax reduction, as well as the government taking stronger steps to address the underlying causes of inflation. In short, they're going to have to do a lot more than just do this on again, off again petrol subsidy uh, if we're going to make New Zealanders feel better off given their prices are rising everywhere they look right now. That's Nicola Willis. Nathan Rarity. It is a quarter to six. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. It's all about the sorry, uh, really sorry state of uh, Coromandel at the moment there. Uh, very, very soggy. We're going to be speaking live with the head of the Mercury Bay Business Association and you're also going to hear about a group of Thames high school students um, who might have to resort to online learning or boarding away from home after a huge landslip uh, blocked access to their school.
That's right. I can't really say it's the professionals of the SWAT of, of the the team now, though, Katrina. We've got to figure that one out. Uh, investigating. There we go. It's investigating cool though, all it? the good stuff from Morning Report. Nice. It is Guy on Espinar. Kia ora, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, big focus this morning, obviously, is Turkey and the um, huge earthquake there, yeah. a death toll mounting. Uh, 2,300 at least dead there after this 7.8 magnitude earthquake. So we're going to be crossing to Istanbul. Uh, to a correspondent there to give us the latest on that devastating international news. The amount of numbers of deaths, eh? Yeah, it's uh, extraordinary quite stunning and them. expected to, to, to go uh, a lot higher. Yeah. Syria too, and remember too, there's a civil war there and there's all the um, refugees as well. So mm. you're looking at a, at a major disaster, obviously. Uh, back home, clean, cleaning up after our disaster. We're going to talk to the uh, former uh, police commissioner, Mike Bush, who is heading this inquiry into the um, Auckland response uh, to the flooding. And uh, Mayor Brown obviously had a lot of criticism, so we're going to speak to him about uh, what his inquiry will cover and also speak to uh, Auckland Emergency Management today. I don't know about your your streets uh, we're, we're in, in your neighbourhood, but I know on, on my street there's just still massive piles of rubbish at yeah. the back end of our street where people are just milling around, um, complaining, and, and as this rubbish fest is away, and I say, as I say rubbish, it's everyone's household you know, um, possessions. Carpet, yeah, yeah, kids' toys, mattresses, um, mattresses yep. TVs, the whole work. So we'll speak to them about the Auckland cleanup. And Beyonce, I th- I'm not sure if we're going to get it, actually get to talk to her, but um, she, oh. <laughs> <laughs> she, like, she hasn't answered my texts here. I must. Um, yeah, send her a tweet. She'll yeah, be fine. She'll yeah, get yeah. She's uh, Rain's Queen Supreme of the Grammys. Um, yeah. So we'll have uh, more on that. Hopefully, play some music too. Let's do that. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Well, a, a group of Thames High School students might have to resort to online learning or board away from. From home after a huge landslip blocked access to their school. Uh, it could take months and possibly over a year for that huge slip on State Highway 25A to be cleared and the road to be repaired. The students would have to travel about two hours each way if they were to get to school via an alternative route. Uh, one student has already decided to change schools completely due to this disruption. Here's Thames High School principal Michael Hart relatively a small number of people affected. We've got three year 13s and one year 12 student and there was another year 11 student that would have been affected this year but their family has decided to go to uh, Whangamata Area School. They had previously been at uh, Thames for two years at year 9 and 10 so that it's really really tricky. The older students have got, they're thinking of they're contemplating different options like online learning which is the first thing to deal with and then thinking about either boarding arrangements or other sorts of arrangements on this side, on the, on the west side, in order to make coming to school easier. But I acknowledge also that there may be some more difficult decisions to be made if this uh, situation lasts as long as we think it's going to last, which is a long time. Michael Hart says it's not feasible for the students to make the four-hour round trip every day. There's been some slow traffic coming through the Karangahaki Gorge, which you have to come through that way. So that made it a bit longer. So, you know, if you do a Google search, it will take an hour and 40 minutes, give or take. But two hours is what one of the um, students told me it took her. And that plan for them was to, in fact, come over here, stay with friends and or family during the week and then return the weekend. So um, they've been able to organise some alternatives, but that's not always the case for all and it's it's an evolving situation. One of our plans is to reach out to our community 
and look for whether we can get, uh, arrange homestays for those for whom that is something that they'd appreciate. But it, it's going to be up to us to contact and continue that conversation with those who are affected. He says it's been a difficult time for the wider school community too. The community around Thames has fortunately been reasonably insulated, but we draw from a wide catchment and those people who are up the coast, as we say, which is near just north of um, Waumu, uh, where there was a, a significant slip on the road. Uh, that has meant that there's been upwards of 30 people affected who are north of that slip, and that has been really, really tricky because the school buses haven't been able to run, although they are going to be running next week. I've got, I've got the call, which is really, really good. But, you know, our resourceful community, we've had some senior students who have, they managed to get on a, a little boat and come across and dock in uh, Tapuru because and, and then make their way to school um, beyond the slip. Uh, that was a couple of people who were involved in our um, our orientation program for our year nines. They very very resourceful young people, but it, it's again it's been a real real difficult time. We closed the school on Wednesday last week to ensure that the amount of uh, traffic that was on the roads affected was going to be minimised because of the red warning that we had. But fortunately, we've had now our year nine orientation day. We've had another day with the full school coming back on Friday and we've got our portfolio coming up on Tuesday. So hopefully it's going to be business as normal, although we also know that clearly those people who are affected on the, on the eastern side, it's really, really tricky for them. That's Thames High School Principal Michael Hart there. It's, uh, look, we stay in the Coromandel. Uh, where businesses that rely on tourists were faced uh, with another heavy blow uh, over Waitangi weekend. That, of course, follows the quiet Auckland anniversary weekend for them the previous week when Auckland tourists were kept away because it was flooding. Uh, to talk us through how businesses are being affected by this, we're joined by Mercury Bay Business Association Chair Linda Grant. Linda, thank you very much for your time here. Uh, can you just explain to to the rest of the country there, the two weekends like this with the influx of customers you, you get into there, how key are they uh, for for you? Uh, they are crucial for our businesses in the um, Victory Bay area. Um, they bring, you know, huge amount of visitors to us um, and our tourist operators, our accommodation people, our retail all rely on this business. So when you have a look around, uh, and I guess people that you've spoken to, uh, over the long weekends, how did it compare? Uh, like a quiet winter weekend. Parking wow. was easy to come by. Um, you know, this all normally only happens in winter where you can go up the road and find a park outside a shop or a cafe. Um, so a lot of the cafes and shops didn't open on the public holiday. Um, this was meant to be a summer concert weekend. And I've had businesses that I've spoken to that are down 60% over this weekend and the previous weekend. Um, and this follows on from a fairly dismal summer. Um, you know, weather has yeah. been not kind to the northern part of um, New Zealand. Um, and we've had, you know, a local tourist operator, boat operator, would normally have had six trips with 60 passengers over that weekend, had two trips this weekend with four passengers. So, oh you know... Some of the reality that we're looking at, and and I, I, I'm just guessing here. I suppose horrible for things like cafes and, and that because they order extra food in, don't they? And and food spoils. 
Yeah, they do. They do. Although, you know, staffing, there are some cafes that have already laid staff off. You know, we have a lot of casual um, staff over summer. Um, and so that we, you know, before Christmas, we had a staffing shortage. Um, and now we have got staff that are looking for work, which is really unheard of at this time of the year. What are the, the roads looking like at the moment? So the beautiful scenic routes are well and truly open. And that's the message we want to get out. Um, you know, coming up around the coastline to Coromandel and down to Fidianga is 15 to 20 minutes more than going over the Kopu Hikawai, which is obviously closed for the foreseeable future. Coming through Pairo, Waihi, Whangamata, um, once again, pretty spectacular scenery, some great cafes and some great beaches. See, the message is, you know, we are open for business. Um, you might have to take the scenic route, but we are definitely open for business in this area. Well, it's pretty good scenery if you're going to take it that way, isn't it, there? It is. It is. It's really great. Can Can you realistically expect to see tourist numbers r- return, or do you, is, was was that the the part that everyone was counting on? I think it was the part everybody was counting on. I think um, was a great campaign, um, both nationally and of. And we're talking international tourists as well here. Um, you know, we have people ringing from Australia saying, are you still open? Yes, we are. Um, so I think businesses, we're definitely open, but businesses want to see some sort of support from um, government. Um, you know, we're in a fairly dire situation and there are a lot of businesses that won't survive a winter um, without getting these tourists back in. Yeah, that's sad. Hey, Linda, thank you very much for your time. Mercury Bay Business Association Chair Linda Grant there. Uh, very quickly, someone's written in this morning. Hey, Wordle today, one of six. Boom, that wasn't Sweet Tango. Oh, no, I don't want to give it away. I'm not going to be a spoiler. Uh, basically, Glenn uh, had a, a clue in there for you in his report. Here's another one. It's a shame Ms. Willis sees the Waitangi Tribunal so poorly. Also, she cannot pronounce her colleague's last name correctly. Reti. Morning Report is next with Guyon and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have a wonderful day. We're back in your ears, uh, or, or, or anytime you like, on the podcast.